While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every day. Join the Mises Institute in Tampa on February 17th for our first event of 2024. We'll discuss inflation, its causes, consequences, and cure. Tom DiLorenzo, Joe Salerno, and Patrick Newman will uncover the state's deceit to reveal inflation for what it really is. Deliberate debasement of the dollar to create winners and losers. Sign up now at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024 and use code ACTION24 for 15% off admission. What is the state? How does it preserve itself? What does it fear? These are the questions Murray Rothbard uncovers in his powerful book, Anatomy of the State. Thanks to our generous donors, the Mises Institute is offering a free copy of this Rothbard classic to Human Action Podcast listeners. Get your copy at Mises.org slash H-A-Pod free. That's H-A, like human action, pod free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Peter, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Bob. All right, so the first thing we have to get out of the way, because it's going to distract people, is you've got sort of a Lex Luthor just broke out of prison look going on, so what's going on there? That was exactly the effect I was going for here. Uh, yeah, I uh, shaved off all my head. Let me see if, uh, if you can see it in the right light. Uh, my wife had been bugging me to do it for years and years. Uh, I just hit 50, so I'm at that age where my hair was looking pathetic. Uh, and, you know, I was in denial. I was trying to hold on to the last little strands, kind of comb everything over. So I had like mm-hmm. six to eight strands blocking the view. And I figured if I just hold it just right, you won't be able to see it on camera. And my wife said, you know what? Bite the bullet. Do the deed. And so I shaved it all off. What I had left was just this tiny little powdering. It looked like I had trimmed my beard. Uh, but I am thrilled I do it. Any guy who, like, as soon as you start pattern balding, as soon as you start seeing just a little bit of shine up there, I would highly recommend just cutting it all off. It, I, I think it looks a lot better. You actually end up looking younger than you did with all the little straggly, you know, little bits hanging here and there. I mean, yeah, you've got I, uh, fantastic hair on the side there, Bob. I, I, I don't mean <laughs> yeah, no. you, obviously. Yeah, it's uh, definitely, uh, I think Bruce Willis sort of paved the way for us. Yes, yes. He took one for the team and then uh, Captain Picard, who yeah. he made mm-hmm. it yeah, cool again. So, yep, definitely. Yeah, they sort of opened doors for us, uh, broke barriers so that it's easier for the rest of us. <laughs> they broke the glass ceiling, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's jump in. So now we yes. got the lighthearted stuff out of the way. Let's now try to depress everybody as much as possible. Bingo. So uh, you first of all, why don't you just explain, uh, because in the Human Action Podcast, we don't have pre-recorded intro segments. So we're going to be covering a lot of the material that I've just seen you handling in your uh, updates and whatnot. So just can you maybe just uh, explain to people what that is, and then, you know, maybe where they go if they're intrigued by what we're going to cover in this episode, where do they go to read more of your stuff? Sure. So I do daily videos on the economy and freedom. Uh, I am an Austrian economist, so all of my understanding of how the economy works uh, is based on Austrian economics. They're generally pretty short. They're about three and a half minutes. Uh, I've found that, you know, if you're getting too deep into economics, um, much beyond that length, people can sort of tune out. So the idea is that you can have it with your morning coffee, get a little shot of Austrian economics every morning. Uh, they post on Twitter. My handle is at Prof which is on this uh, little thing here. Uh, and then also on YouTube. I figure YouTube is eventually going to nuke me. So whatever, those are just archives. Uh, mainly they go up on Twitter every morning. And then I have a website called PeterSanange.com. Okay, great. So yeah, just again, you gave me a list here of some of the recent greatest hits. Several weeks ago, you had mentioned uh, this idea that intrigued me of how the Fed ruined housing or sort of wrecked housing, maybe was the term. Can you just summarize what was going on there? Yeah, so this is coming from the work of one of my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation, E.J. Antoni. uh, And he sort of went through, he, he did this long article looking at the history of housing. 
specifically how the Fed uh, broke it, by which he means they drove prices up, specifically prices for uh, poorer communities, right? And so this ended up sort of gutting these communities, right? So you had, for example, a lot of urban communities in American cities where people have been living there together for generations, right? Some of these were ethnic, some of them were minorities, some of them were even Anglo-Saxon. At any rate, you had all these communities and you know, you would be like third, fourth generation. Everybody went to the same church. It might be the, you know, Ukrainian Orthodox church or something. You had these really, really strong community ties because people had been there so long. So what the federal government did really kicking off with LG, uh, with uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was to subsidize cheap housing, right? Uh, you know, aimed at poorer people. And what they were hoping to do uh, was to, you know, make life easier for poor people. But the sort of unintended consequence was that this started gentrifying uh, neighborhoods. So all of these old communities started sort of breaking up. Uh, new people started coming in. Uh, and then sort of the next, you know, play in that was the 1970s inflation. That, of course, hit housing, right? Housing is like gold. It's, it's something you can drop on your foot. Uh, it's a real asset. And so housing went up more or less in lockstep uh, with inflation in the 70s. So that then priced a lot more of these people out. Uh, the response that the Fed had to inflation, of course, was Paul Volcker jacking interest rates up to you know roughly 20%. Uh, at that point, then mortgages were prohibitive, again, you know, for these working class um, or even lower class communities. Uh, and then the next step there was that, yeah, George W. Bush, who came in and he was touting this so-called compassionate conservatism, which basically meant taking all the social engineering, terrible ideas of the left and putting this sort of <laughs> Republican, uh, you know, paint job on them. Uh, so again, they had the housing subsidies, try to get people to, uh, I think he called it the ownership society to, to try to get more and more people to own homes. Uh, the Fed got involved, especially in 2008 crisis, buying up uh, mortgage-backed securities. There was just this full court press to subsidize home ownership. And of course, you know, as an economist, if you do that, that is then going to drive up the price of the homes, right? If you're subsidizing mortgages, then the sort of uh, ticket price on the, on the mortgage, in other words, the home price is going to keep going up. Uh, and so uh, sort of the final stage bringing us to today is now COVID, where again, they drove housing up partly through inflation, partly through uh, su through subsidization of mortgages, especially uh, mortgage-backed securities. The Fed, against, again, dipped in during COVID and bought uh, another big chunk of them. So when you sort of, you know, zoom out, look at the entire process here, it's been, it almost looks like an intentional deconstruction of a lot of these historical communities that have existed for a long time. Some of them are urban, some of them are, are you know, sort of outside of cities, it might be 45 minutes or an hour outside of a city like Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or something. And these have just, um, by subsidizing housing, a lot of these have chased out the people who had lived there for generations. And then, you know, you've got people who can uh, afford those much higher prices coming in, which typically middle class. And, you know, having, uh, so I grew up in a neighborhood very much like that in Philadelphia called Spring Garden. Uh, it's close to the art museum. And indeed, right, that was an old Irish neighborhood. It had been Irish for since time immemorial, since the mists <laughs> first fell upon the shores of America. And, uh, you know, I was part of the yuppie uh, influx who was coming in. My dad was a professor, so, you know, he could get a mortgage in the 1970s uh, when we were growing up. And there was a lot of resentment towards us. We got flaming dog poop through the mailbox. So it was it was pretty clear that we were not that welcome. Uh, but at this point, I can sympathize that, you know, you did have these uh, federal uh, policies as well as, you know, central bank policies that did promote gentrification. And the end result is that it sort of scatters these communities. You know, people look at, say, um, the Lower East Side in New York that used to be this very, very strong Jewish community, and, and people are sort of scattered. They're, they're here and there in the suburbs. Uh, so at any rate, that's, that's what uh, EJ went through in that article. Okay. I have to ask, was that hyperbole or you literally had flaming poo in your mailbox? Yep. Literally. Well, okay. To be specific, my friend who was also a yuppie family, he got the flaming poo in the mailbox. So we, 
We did not. I think uh, we moved in about two years afterwards. So he he got the brunt of it. He was kind of the um, but yes, literally a bag of flaming poo in the mailbox. This was the welcome wagon. OK, because that leads to my next question. Is that what prepared you emotionally to become an Austro libertarian? <laughs> oh, my God. Growing up in Philadelphia, yes, prepared me for a lot. There's um, in Philadelphia, people have very strong tribes. Um, based on a number of factors, um, uh -huh. down to which street you grew up on, right? So, you know, are, are you a Brown Street person or are you, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, so definitely, uh, there were a lot of uh, fist fights in my youth. Yeah, and my part, it was, uh, I grew up in upstate New York, and so I was a Buffalo Bills fan, and every year I was in high school, they <laughs> lost the Super Bowl. And so my running joke is that's what made me go into libertarianism. That's right, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> The the other thing too, just you know, the big picture of this stuff is, um, like I know if people aren't familiar with the work of Jane Jacobs talking about how government play, and she's not coming at the issue from an ideological, abstract, theorizing perspective. Just she studied cities and was you know loved the old school Americana and you know all the different shop owners living and, and working all in the yeah. same area and you could be running the shop and the kids are running around and you could keep yep. an eye on it and how just regulation coming in completely killed that and like building monstrous housing projects that are just these behemoths. And so then the parents are up there on the, you know, 22nd floor, they can't keep an eye on the kids and just, yep. you know, just like if you deliberately wanted to destroy a bunch of communities, yes, you would do what guys like Robert Moses did in New York city. It just, yeah, you know, building highways yeah. right through the middle of a neighborhood and just completely, you know, cutting off the commerce and the isolating it. So anyway, um, just that's some good detail in terms of consequences of things that I, at first blush, like, oh, yeah, you should have residential zoning and commercial zoning. And that's good, right? Because you can't have and just showing the details on the ground. Like, look at how that destroys community, breeds crime and and so on. Oh, absolutely. Um, I I. I I wish I could find it, but there was this picture that I had seen years ago. It was a before and after of Cabrini Greens, which is a massive housing project in Chicago. And they had built it there in order to level a black neighborhood because they consider that urban blight. And you've got these pictures of the neighborhood before they leveled it. And it's like you've got the fruit vendor out, right? The kids are coming home from school. They stop by the fruit man and get a free apple. And he asks them, how you doing on your homework? You know, are you listening to your mother? I, you know, I, I haven't seen you in church. I mean, just the, the, the community that was destroyed intentionally is just absolutely shocking. And this really shouldn't be a left-right issue. I mean, there, I can't imagine anybody actually thinks that that's an improvement to take this, you know, living neighborhood just, you know, made of these relationships, these these lifelong relationships, and then replace that with a Stalinesque architecture, which, by the way, uh, Romania did that. Um, I imagine many communist regimes did that, but specifically they would level out villages and put up these, you know, horrific cinder blocks. And part of the intention was to erase community uh, feeling to sort of, you know, turn people into these uh, minions of the state. But it strikes me as something that should not be uh, politicized at all. I mean, this, this is just objectively a horrible thing to do. Yeah. And, and just one last comment on this stuff. I remember, let's say, you know, 2008, 2009, when all of us were arguing about the housing bubble, which was then of course, you know, had popped in the financial crisis and whatnot. And, I'll, and so of course, a lot of libertarian conservative types were pointing at uh, various federal programs and things like you say that were to try to encourage home ownership, as they said, and guys like Krugman or whatever were coming, like, oh no, this is just right wing myth. And that, that, that. and I yeah. want to say, we, you can't have it both ways. I mean, if you went back and looked and it wasn't like, as you say, a, a partisan issue that George W. Bush was there, you know, smiling for photo ops for legislation he had signed. Yep. So it's like, well, well take your pick. I mean, back before the housing bubble popped, various people were taking credit for encouraging home ownership, you know? Yeah. Cause if it weren't for us, you know, the banks would never lend to these marginalized communities. And exactly. So it's like, well, which is it? You know, you yeah. can't say, so, well, gee, why did they make all these loans that ended up not performing? Is it, like, well, I don't know, maybe if you had programs that were literally designed to induce banks to make loans that yep. they didn't want to based on the fundamentals, maybe not be surprised that they made loans, not based on the fundamentals. I don't know. It's yeah. football in here. Yeah. All right. Well, 
let's go on down to this cheery list that you've sent me in preparation <laughs> for this. The Federal Reserve uh, didn't have a good good year mm, last year, at least in no. terms of uh, business metrics. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, they lost 114 billion uh, operating loss, which is pretty amazing because like they print money and they don't have <laughs> you know any costs, right? They literally sit in an Excel sheet and type one more zero, right? Uh, so, you know, you would think it's a really high margin business, but yeah, apparently they lost $114 billion last year. Uh, a lot of that was, um, you know, they hiked rates and that eroded the value of their bonds. And so they've, they've, they've got these massive unrealized losses, which are estimated to be over a trillion. Uh, but the sort of most immediate cause of all that lost money uh, is that they're paying out money to basically banks and hedge funds to park money at the Fed. Uh, this is useful because it hides, implies intentionality, um, but it sort of salts away money so that it's not you know, circulating in the economy, causing inflation. Uh, and so if you just kind of for fun, if you go back and rank that $114 billion loss, that would make it the third largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. Uh, after Lehman Brothers and Washington Mutual in 2008, which, of course, had also had something to do with the Fed. Uh, and But, you know, the important thing here, of course, for all of us is that the Fed, sadly, is not going to go bankrupt. Uh, they can keep losing money forever and ever. Uh, as you know, they, they called it, what is it, a, a deferred asset uh, on their balance sheet. And so they just say, well, you know, uh, we owe this to Treasury. And that number can theoretically go to trillions and trillions. And they'll just say, well, we'll pay back in the future. And now, of course, you know, you know, they're good for it because they do have a money printer. Right. But then, you know, that will convert it into inflation, water into wine for the rest of the dollars. Yeah. And just to uh, elaborate or, or amplify a couple of the yep. points you made there, because Jonathan Newman in particular has been a frequent guest here on the podcast in throughout 2023. And we were hitting on a lot of these issues uh, we had Alex Pollock on as well. Uh, this is his area of expertise or one of them. And, you know, you put your finger on it there that some people might suppose when they hear, oh yeah, because of interest rate hikes, the fed lost 114 billion. They might have supposed that, oh, you guys mean they're sitting on a bunch of fixed income. Mm -hmm. And if they marked it to market, yes, there's losses right. on paper, but you know what? The fed is just going to hold it to maturity. What's the big deal. Right. And that's not what you're talking about. You're saying the fact that no, they're paying interest on yes. reserves, so it's, you know, money going out the door versus how much do they have coming in in terms of earnings. And there's a huge mismatch just there. So it's, you know, it's an interesting question we don't need to get into here. We did try yeah. to address it in previous episodes as to, you know, well, why does the Fed have to pay money? You know, if they can just create yeah. money, why are they paying <laughs> right. anybody? But, and it's, I mean, one quick answer is because it would probably crash the dollar if everyone just saw, <laughs> no, they're literally just printing money and not even worrying about, but, right. but that's, but but just to be clear for people, like you're not merely referring to an unrealized loss Correct. because of the drop in market value. You actually mean their operating expenses because the Fed is now paying interest yep. to people to keep their deposits parked. That's higher than the money they're earning quarter by quarter. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, so the amount that they're paying out to these banks and hedge funds and other financial institutions, the amount that they're paying back, uh, that they're paying them, you know, to essentially borrow the dollars that they themselves printed. That amount is something like 250 or 280 billion a year, which interestingly is almost identical to the aggregate profits of all of the banks on Wall Street. So in other words, 50 cents on the dollar they earn by being banks. The other 50 cents they earn by lending money back to the Fed that the Fed printed. It is, um, I think that might be surprising to people, like what share of uh, the profits on Wall Street are actually coming directly from the Fed. This is not just kind of, you know, give, uh, doing them a favor here and there when they need it. This is almost like a Fed-owned subsidiary. Right. And as many critics point out, you know, so arguably the, this is, you know, hundreds of billions of a subsidy from you could say taxpayer. Well, it's taxpayer in the sense that, you know, it's the, the Fed, if it had earned that interest would have remitted it to the treasury. But, right. you know, so there's that, but in general dollar holders, let's say is there, you know, who's, who bears the brunt of monetary inflation, you know, at least as in quoted in us dollars right? and how much they're being forced to subsidize banks in the United States and financial institutions that are eligible for this kind of stuff. And 
that, you know, Congress didn't approve that or anything. I mean, they did in the <laughs> right. abstract sense because, you know, giving the Fed the authority to do what it does, but it's not like that was a line to, item approved to, anywhere. Yeah, and and to the extent that they actually gave them authority, right, that's, that's a very open question, um, which I don't think we're going to talk about Chevron uh, deference here today, but at any rate, um, it's a very open question whether or not the Fed has authority to do just about everything it's done. Certainly any kind of policy innovation since 2008 arguably since much earlier than that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there, I believe there's been almost no explicit congressional authorization. Uh, the Fed just sits down with lawyers and they, they kind of, you know, they, they brainstorm, they create a spitball, they imagine, could you read this this way? Well, maybe you could. And they, uh, I suppose they just kind of dare people to sue them. There was something, you might remember this, this is just a couple months ago, there was some discussion that the Fed had some sort of a doomsday book you know what I'm talking about? I, I, no, I didn't. I didn't hear that. No. Yeah. So apparently, and and was it Ron Paul's and the Fed? Is that what you're talking about? It should have been. It should have been. But no, this is that. Um, so apparently, the Fed and you know the Fed openly admits this. They have sort of these series of contingency plans in case the stuff hits the fan, and they've got all these powers that they think they might have, but they're not exactly sure. OK, mm -hmm. so they've you know gotten lawyers to sit down and write out this thing. And colloquially, it's referred to as the doomsday book. But sort of translating that for laypersons, what it means is a bunch of illegal things or unconstitutional things that the Fed does not have the authority to do. Therefore, it would be illegal for them to do it. But what they're waiting for is a big enough crisis that even though it's illegal, they're just going to drive that sucker through there and, and dare Congress to do something about it because they'll hold up the human shields. And you know, this is the playbook they've done since time immemorial. Uh, you know, that was the the gold clauses or the uh, back, you know, during the um, during FDR, uh, the mortgage, right, sort of the original mortgage moratorium back during FDR as well. They just kind of have these illegal things that they've got in their back pocket. And then if the crisis gets big enough, they drive it through. So at any rate, apparently there is a gigantic book, the Doomsday Book, that has a whole bunch of stuff illegal stuff that they're contemplating, which offhand, you know, we do have statues for organizations that do that kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, they're called RICO uh, statutes. So, <laughs> you know, in theory, if somebody in Congress was curious, I suppose they could sit down and ask them about these uh, illegal conspiracies that they've hatched up. But anyway, that is, that's sort of how the Fed's operated for about 100 years now. Reminds me of uh, under the George W. Bush administration was was it John Yu? Is that the guy's name? Like, yeah, basically exactly. saying, you know, right. exactly. At what point would it be torture? You know, that's, right. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's right. that should make that's you not, not uh, too, too happy when, you know, the people are wondering, like, just tell us precisely when is the torture begin? Right. Because we need to know. If we drown yeah. it, but there's no lasting damage, is it really torture? <laughs> yes, that is exactly what it is. Yep. And interestingly, you could even, the, the people could even die in custody as a result of what you did to them. And that technically wasn't over the line because right. uh, so anyway, yeah. um, but that's a separate matter. So on that point about the Fed and the possible illegality, even, you know, within the own, their own framework, I have a, I think it's a standalone chapter folks. If you want to go check out in, in the book, understanding money mechanics that I have with the Institute that, you know, the free PDFs available, you can just go just Google my name and the title and you'll find it. But we're talking, Peter, I don't know if we've ever talked about this or this is on your radar, but uh, after 2008 and the various extraordinary measures the Fed started doing, there was somebody sent something to a law journal talking about that. And in particular, you know, the Fed was, is, was not supposed to hold assets besides uh, mm -hmm. government bonds. Like they certainly were not supposed to be coming in and, you know, buying mortgage backed securities and stuff like that. Cause for the obvious possible problem of the you know, corruption involved, the temptation mm -hmm. to favor certain groups over others. And so the way they got around that was by creating the maiden lane LLCs because yeah. the fed was, had much broader power to lend money to institutions, but buying assets, you know, was a bright line. And so technically what they're doing, they don't buy up all the mortgage backed securities. What they do is they lend money to these two maiden lane LLCs. And then those things go out and buy the assets. Yeah. And so that's the way they can say, what are you talking about? We're not, we're not buying mortgage back securities, even though like they're listed on the feds balance sheet. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, just some of the little hoops they jump through because oh, again, sure. at the end of the day, they're trying to save the global economy. That's they right. They got guys like you and me spit, throwing spitballs at them. <laughs> we right. have nothing to contribute. We don't even that have a full exactly head of hair. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
Okay. Well, let's move along here. So the $114 billion loss, that sounds like a big deal. What about the debt being breaking 34 trillion. Let's talk about that. Yeah, that was that actually happened on the 29th of December. They held off to tell us until the New Year. So that was a belated Christmas present for the American people. We now hit 34 trillion in debt. If you divide that by the number of families in the country, it comes to about $275,000 per family or per per household. Sometimes a household is much smaller. Um, my colleague uh, Richard uh, Stern, he calls that a American family's second mortgage. It's pretty much accurate. Uh, and it took 105 days for that to go from 33 trillion to 34 trillion. So that is a roughly three and a half trillion dollar a year pace. It's pretty exciting. Um, the projected deficit, I think for next year is actually something like two trillion. Uh, but empirically, the debt is going up a heck of a lot faster than that. Uh, and that comes out to an amount of around about 25,000 per household in additional debt per year, which is pretty astounding. I mean, assuming that the taxpayers are eventually going to pay that off, that would seem like a pretty uh, a pretty large burden. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so out of it at this point in terms of the conventional narrative, Overton window, whatever phrase you want yeah. to use. I Like, I remember, you know, during the Obama administration, well, the very tail end of the George W. Bush administration, he had like stimulus checks or something go out and people were quibbling about that. And then Obama came in and they had their big stimulus package. And I remember they were, you know, saying how big could it be? And they're saying, well, it can't be over a trillion, but it's got to be big enough. And okay, that's the science, Bob. That's how the science works. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, they're going through and, and, and I think, was it four years in a row that there was a trillion dollar plus deficit? I believe so under in the Obama years. You know, and I and I remember giving talks at the time and saying, you know, remember guys under under Ronald Reagan, how you know, like a two hundred billion dollar range deficit was just considered the most irresponsible <laughs> thing imaginable, and this guy's nuts. And so, okay, but at least at the time, fair enough, they could say plausibly, well, we just went through the worst global depression crisis since the Great Depression. Give us a break. Right. But at this point, all the Keynesian people are running around victory laps talking about how great the economy is. Unemployment's at, you know, many decades plus lows. Yep. Biden's a, a hero. So like on, on their terms, I mean, shouldn't the deficit be a lot lower at least very soon? Like what's the, yeah. you know, cause COVID hit. Okay, fine. But at this point, when are we going to stop seeing multi-trillion dollar deficits annually? Like according to yeah. them. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, historically, once the recession hits, that's when you really get the pile on the deficit. And if we look back at the last three recessions and sort of extrapolate to where we are today, you'd be looking at somewhere around three or four trillion in additional deficit, right? So if you look at what the budget situation was for the deficit before and after each of the last four recessions, you just extrapolate that forward. Uh, So if we're running two and the economy is healthy, and in theory, we're at peace. I mean, we're at peace for America, right? We, you know, we've sort of permanently <laughs> been at war since, you know, 1789. But, um, but you know, we're, we're relatively at peace and we're allegedly not in a recession. And yet we're sporting a deficit that on paper is $2 trillion and reality is apparently higher than that. And so that's the concern, right, is that sooner or later we are, by all accounts, going to hit some sort of a slowdown or a recession, whether or not it's above the magic line of zero is that is, uh, you know, somewhat academic, uh, because even if you're looking at, say, 1% growth, you're going to have a lot of unemployment. Uh, we know from experience, the headlines are going to be full of all the families who are hurting. That is going, which people are going to be hurting, that is going to create public pressure for uh, ramps up in spending. So, you know, I think that there's sort of no um, natural predator <laughs> uh, to the deficit getting up towards three, four trillion uh, in the next couple of years. And, you know, sort of beyond that, on a political level, neither party at this point is particularly interested in reducing it. Uh, for a long time, the Republicans played the soccer where the Democrats, you know, they would come into the election and say, hey, you want to have a party? And people say, yes, I want a party. And then the Republicans will say, well, no, 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 no. we're not going to bring you a party, but we are going to clean up the last party. And lo and behold, uh, they would lose elections. 
And so, you know, they're, I think W and then Trump finally discovered that that's, that's not a winning strategy. Uh, rather, you know, I think the only way at this point to actually end deficits is that there has to be some sort of external mechanism. And the clean one would be some sort of a balanced budget amendment. The not so clean one would either be a financial, you know, collapse uh, in the dollar, which is relatively unlikely, or default, which I think is interesting. Uh, you know, if we look back, for example, one of the sort of guiding points from anyway on the default question is what happened to Greece in the European debt crisis back in around 2009. What was interesting there was that, so Greece threatened to default on its external debt because the greedy Germans, you know, were just uh, fleecing the hardworking Greek people. And what was interesting in that scenario was that, so the amount of debt interest that Greece as a country was paying out on sovereign debt, okay, as a percent of GDP, it was lower at that time than it was in the United States at that time. So in other words, Greece was not actually in distress. Okay, it was not forced to default. What happened is that you had a political entrepreneur who perceived that going to the Greek people and saying, hey, you want to make a quick $100 billion and shaft the Germans? All right, so that is a winning political message. It's always a winning political message in every country. So that, to me, is the interesting question, right? So at this point, the debt is $34 trillion. The amount of that that's widows and orphans, in other words, sympathetic um, you know, creditors, so that might be Social Security, uh, certain types of pensions. Um, you know, you put that together, I, I guess you're talking maybe 8 to 12. Uh, the remainder of it is, you know, it's owned by Chinese uh, investors or it's owned by other countries, uh, which are never sympathetic, or it's owned by rich Wall Streeters. Uh, at sooner or later, you know, it's it's not a question of will the U.S. become unable to pay its debt, which I think is, you know, that's like where 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 the light is best. And so that's where sort of the economic debate is, is looking for the keys over there. I think the much more interesting question is at what point will a political entrepreneur uh, propose to make a quick twenty six trillion dollars? And, you know, that's that's going to start happening in more and more normal countries uh, because, you know, the debt is becoming overwhelming in Australia, Canada, Europe, everywhere in the world, Japan. As that happens in more and more normal countries, I think that the American uh, voters are going to start becoming more and more receptive to that idea. Well, yeah, I I can't remember the exact details, but I swear that I've heard in the last 18 months at some point, somebody, I think it was a Republican in the U.S., uh, I don't think it was Trump per se, but somebody, mm -hmm. you know, railing against the Chinese and look at all the IP violation yep. and then saying, you know, in lieu of Congress doing something or blah, 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 why don't we just, you know, st stop making interest payments on the debt they hold or, you know, something like exactly. that. And, right. and I'm sure with all these things, it was like a trial balloon to see. And then, yep. you know, probably behind the scenes, somebody from the NBA contacted him and got him to change his tune. <laughs> Who knows? But, uh, but I, but yeah, it does seem like that's kind of a, a no brainer that given the, our political climate, you know, once it gets backed into that corner, that that would just seem like trillions of free money just sitting there and, oh, it's, and they have, would have all this rhetoric from, sure. you know, the Republicans yep. to be able to, to point to, to say, well, according to you guys, they're a bunch of bad guys anyway. So it's not like we, you know, we're, we're defaulting on, you know, some honest, hardworking, uh, ally or something. Exactly. And of course, the beauty of it economically is that if if uh, the federal government stiffs all these foreigners, then they won't lend anymore. <laughs> right. It's so elegant, right? You get the balanced budget amendment and a $26 trillion tip on top of it. The political calculus, I think, is overwhelming. Um, you know, Brian Kaplan has talked about the, uh, what, is, what is he called, the, the libertarian conspiracy that, you know, there are all these policies that should be happening because they have widespread um, popularity, and yet they don't exist. And in this case, I think what we're looking at is, you know, whether it's uh, the Fed or Wall Street or whatever it is, that there's this group of people who have a fair amount of power in Washington, and they are standing in the way of what is obviously an extremely popular policy of stiffing the Chinese and getting a free balanced budget amendment in the blend. What's also funny about the, the balanced budget amendment, my take on that for years at this point, has been to point out that all they would need to do is stop raising the debt ceiling. And mm -hmm. then from that point forward, you would effectively have a balanced budget amendment. Yeah. And so all these lawmakers, I don't even like using that term, all these politicians who, uh, 
you know, talk about, oh, if only we had a balanced budget amendment, and they, they keep voting to raise the debt ceiling. Yeah. It's like, well, you right. don't need a constitutional amendment yeah. to just not raise the debt ceiling. That's just a majority. So just stop doing that. And that, yeah. <laughs> but no, they they don't. Yeah. So. Yep. Absolutely. Um, well, that sort of ties into another one of your recent uh, tidbits, the the case for, or not the case, but the possibility of major tax hikes coming in 2025. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the big one there was the Trump tax cuts. And I think you and I were probably both pretty shocked that that thing even got through, right? It was a massive cut in the corporate tax. Uh, mm -hmm. Economists know that, you know, the corporate tax along with uh, taxes on investment I mean, they're, they're just absolute nuclear bombs. They're so horrible for growth. Um, but the problem is that it's very hard to explain to normal people uh, why corporate taxes are so harmful or why investment taxes are so harmful. And so it was really impressive uh, that Trump did get those tax cuts through. But of course, at this point, he's out of power, um, it, at least for the moment. And, you know, the, the political reality, you know, sort of gra <laughs> it's returning to earth, the gravity is setting back in that fundamentally corporate uh, tax cuts and investment tax cuts are not popular. And so that's very much in danger. Uh, I had read somewhere they sort of tallied it up, I'm sure over a decade or two, but it's something like $6 trillion in taxes that are at issue. Uh, that, you know, I think sort of the more salient aspect of that at the moment is just that we are coming into the election. We just started with Iowa. When people say there's no difference between the parties, uh, you know, even aside from Trump, who's obviously very different in many ways, uh, those tax cuts, if Republicans don't capture the White House, uh, it, you know, I think it's essentially guaranteed that those tax cuts are going to be reversed. Uh, that will give up, I think, a lot of the growth that we did get during the Trump era. Uh, we had some growth in manufacturing and domestic companies. I think that's all just going to be given right back if uh, those uh, taxes come back up. And yeah, I actually hadn't thought of that in a while, but you're right. When that, uh, what's you know, been called the Trump tax cut went through, yeah. I was surprised at how, I guess what I'm saying, I could understand why the critics were like, this is all for rich people. Like I, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and like in terms of economic efficiency and bang for the buck or whatever, exactly. like it was like, no, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, if you, right. you wanted to target it, you know, like what, what, what mix of tax cuts would in terms of the, you know, the cost, the way they score those things would, would maximize GDP growth or something. It actually was impressive, but yeah, I, I was surprised by how much I was like, huh, I, I could see why the, the uh, egalitarians would be upset by this. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, and I guess, you know, that, I guess people, they could say those things all tie together uh, as far as, you know, the, the deficit ballooning and, mm -hmm. and, and as you say, like I, I certainly think we do have a recession coming. And so that's going to even, as bleak as like the CBO's projections are yes, you know, in terms of the I fiscal agree. outlook yeah. and things They're, those just assume everything kind of goes back to normal and interest rates gently rise. Like for example, <laughs> I just saw recently that I hadn't realized this, but the, even right now, even though the interest, the ab in absolute dollar terms, the interest expense is huge on, you know, federal debt as a percentage of GDP, it's not unprecedented. Like it, I right. think it was higher at some point in the nineties just because interest rates were higher and so still, even though rates, of course, have come off their rock bottom levels of a few years ago, interest, you know, rates on treasuries are not high by historical standards by any stretch. So the, I think that's, that's part of what sort of, uh, hid the impact of just how much borrowing the federal government has done yes, over the last absolutely. 12 years or whatever. Right. It's yep. just the interest rates have been so low that we, it hasn't felt real. Right. And even today, um, this from memory, I think like the average um, rate on federal debt is something like 1.9%. I mean, I mean, it's still quite low, right? Because most of this debt is very old, right? Uh, you know, we've only had high rates for not even 18 months at this point. And so it's sort of a trap, right? Like you get lured in by these massive numbers and you say, ah, but it's fine. We can handle it because look, you know, the interest costs are very low. And Janet Yellen's been doing that, right? She's been giving all these press conferences. She said, no, no, this is perfectly sustainable because look, rates are so low. And of course, as you say, right, it's, it's, it's automatic. It's like an escalator just over time as the old debt rolls over and then this new expensive debt comes back on and the thing just absolutely balloons, which, you know, sooner or later that takes us to crisis. The only way out of it, ironically, is if we do have a massive recession, 
a depression so bad that the Fed can yank rates back down to zero and then keep them there forever and a half. And of course, if that were to happen, then we have other issues, right? So the deficit mm -hmm. would rise because you'd have to take care of all the millions of people who were displaced. Of course, they'll say it was the AI when it was the Fed, but this is, you know, this is how they operate. So it's kind of, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. And it there did seem to be a period, you know, during the Obama years where it looked like, no, they can print a bunch of money and ex quadruple the Fed's balance sheet and CPI doesn't go through the roof and don't listen to those idiots from, you know, the Mises Institute or Heritage or whoever. Uh, but obviously recent years have shown that, no, that's that uh, it's still the case that stagflation is possible. And it's not that, you know, the, the technocrats have gotten around that. So, you know, that's really the, I think the, the position that's really going to be the worst of all worlds is if, yeah, we do have this crash coming that, or crash occur that I think is coming. Yep. And then they do just open the floodgates, but then you do see that, yeah, they try to lower rates, but at the same time, eggs are getting more and more expensive all the time. And, you know, they're going to be forced to choose at that point. Oh, and then maybe as politicians start talking about, well, why are we paying all this interest to Chinese held treasury debt? And then maybe the Chinese realize, well, maybe we should stop holding that if they're going to yeah. stiff us. And then, you know, there could be a lot of different things coming home to roost in the roughly the same time period. Yeah, you get this kind of game theory where, you know, everybody's trying to anticipate everybody else and stay one move ahead. And I mean, you've done some great work on that, um, you know, examining exactly where the money went in 2008, why it didn't necessarily translate into inflation, which I think surprised everybody. Right. But, you know, of course, logically, it was salted away somehow. And so where exactly did it went? Uh, did it go? Why was it not circulating? But um, I mean, I've seen some of your work on it, just sort of going through all of the various hypotheses, uh, hypotheses on it. And it'll be interesting this time around, right? Like apparently this most recent inflation, that sucker just plowed right through, right? It didn't, it didn't get locked up anywhere. Uh, and now the question going forward is, is it going to look more like 2008? Is it going to look more like 2020 or 2021 rather? Yeah, and thank you for the kind remarks. So yeah, for interested uh, listeners, there's a little bit of a discussion that's more open-ended in the, that Understanding Money Mechanics book I pointed you to earlier. Again, just you Google my name, get the free PDF from Mises.org on that, where I just go through you know some hypothesis. I don't like take a firm stand. That's supposed to be more of an open-ended, like even a leftist professor could use that book. So I tried to just give a framework. But yeah, I gave a talk, Peter, uh, at one of the recent Mises University uh, lectures, uh, the titles folks, and I'll put a link at the show notes page folks, if you want to look it up, but it had to do with the difference between, uh, you know, QE versus Corona to show, you know, wh wh why is it that when the fed massively expands balance sheet in the, uh, Obama years, it didn't lead to $10 gallon gasoline, but yet it looked like that's the way things were going and the fed quickly reversed course this time. And one thing, not just to give a little snippet is I, th I think Peter, part of it was if you look, you can see, uh, M1 zoomed up in both times, but M2 during the, you know, the yeah. Obama years didn't zoom up. Right. If you just looked at M2, you wouldn't have realized that the Fed did something extraordinary. Whereas yep. if you look at 2020, <laughs> M2 and M1 both went, went right. you know, through the roof. And I think so part of what was going on there is I think what was happening is the Fed uh, or people in the financial sector were panicked, you know, after the 2008 mm -hmm. crisis. And so they were taking, like they were moving money out of money market, mutual funds, and putting them in literally into checking accounts, things like right. that. Because remember, they bumped up the um, the FDIC from 100k to 250k, for example, right. you know, among other things. And so, if people understand how those monetary aggregates work, that would make M1 go way up, but M2 would be unaffected by just moving the composition. So, things like that. That some of the indicators where it because I was checking things too because you yeah. like, oh yeah, they increased how much they paid on excess reserves. But I was at you know 2009, 2010, I was looking. Insane, but no, but M M1 is going up like money held by the public. But again, M2 wasn't. So that kind of showed it was more the money. The public was just rearranging the, the composition of their money broadly defined as opposed to, you know, the, the stockpile going drastically up. Whereas that did happen uh, in the after Corona. Right. Okay. Well, we're throwing big numbers around. Can you tell us about the United Nations Oh, they want to stop boy. global climate yeah. change. It's yeah. a, a noble, laudable goal. Of course, and they yeah. just they need a little uh, a little pocket change. And I forget the figure. Can you remind us, Peter? How much does the UN say they need to tackle climate change? Yeah, they need one hundred and fifty trillion dollars. 
Not a typo. And it, yeah. Yeah, that's tr- a trillion with a T. Trillion with a T, which, you know, it's kind of like uh, when kids, you know, they're like, uh, it's a bazillion. So 150 trillion is just shy of a bazillion. That is a <laughs> large number. Okay, so for comparison, so world GDP, I think, is r- something around that number. Um, accumulated wealth, there's various measures, but something like 300 to 350 trillion would be the accumulated wealth uh that you can measure, um, you know, so not human capital, but at any rate, uh, the accumulated wealth of humanity since the beginning of time is roughly twice that. So anyway, that's what the, uh, the UN wants. Uh, it's an opening bid. Okay. So they admit that, you know, this is just a preliminary estimate. Um, if you know anything about government budgeting, a preliminary estimate means that it will go up in future. This does not mean that it will go down in future. Uh, so, right. And, you know, what a lot of that's going to go to is the energy transition, uh, quote unquote, which means that they're going to throw away perfectly good fossil fuels, which, by the way, of course, the West got rich on fossil fuels because they're amazing. Uh, anyway, they're going to throw those away in theory, and then they're going to replace them with solar and wind and all the unicorn farts. Uh, so that comes to about, was it, $5 trillion over the next 50 years, which actually, if you do the math, that's $250 trillion. Uh, so I don't know how that made it through editing. Uh, and then on top of that, they've got like this climate fund that's essentially going to pay poor countries, uh, to compensate them from the damage, um, of the imaginary climate crisis. And of course, again, you know, if you read between those lines, what they're really doing is getting all these skeptical countries in Africa, um, you know, basically countries who haven't drank the international communities. Uh, Kool-Aid, and they're going to bribe them to come on board and to be poster children for the Green Revolution and to go on about how this stuff is all magical. And it turns out there's a lot of countries in the world, you know, like if you'd like to buy Cameroon and turn them into a, you know, climate evangelist, uh, evangelist, I'm certain that there's enough money in $150 billion to find the way to do that. And so, I mean, really, they've been doing that for about 30 years. So, you know, a lot of these countries go on about, you know, look at, look at our, our disappearing islands and whatever other things they make up. Uh, so anyway, the, yes, this is, you know, the UN, it's comforting that they're actually putting a number on it. It is hilarious <laughs> what these kinds of numbers are. They're clearly at this point, not really even trying to sell it per se. You know, there was a time when at least they would give really small numbers. And they would just kind of ease into it. And so in a sense, I guess it's concerning that they are coming out with these big round numbers because they're unafraid of anybody actually turning on them. So are you insane and defunding them? Yeah. Well, I, yep. I wonder if part of that is they're sort of swept away by their own rhetoric that, yeah. you know, if the world really is going to end in 72 months, unless we completely upend our existing global economic system, if they said, so that's why we need $50 billion, people would say, well, well wait a minute, you know, yeah, so that's right. what, no, we need 150 trillion <laughs> because <laughs> it's that's that how bad. bad this is. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now you said something interesting there. I mean, I, everything you said was interesting, but it's particularly interesting that I want to elaborate on is, uh, you know, this notion that you, the more you, you dig into this stuff and it's one ar- could argue, and I have seen people say this, like people that you could say it's a conspiracy theory, but I'm just wondering, I just want to bounce it off of you saying, you know, you've got the established West, as you say, they grew rich and powerful on the back of fossil fuels. And now they're putting in place a global order that would greatly restrict the ability of let's say countries in Africa from following that same trajectory. And they're sending large cash payments to the Mm -hmm. current government officials in those various countries who are, you know, overseeing all this. And so some cynics might say that this is a, a plan for the existing people who run the world to keep their potential competitors who have higher birth rates and whatnot from catching up anytime soon, like hobbling their, their industry for generations. And yeah, you got to buy off the local strongman to, to, you know, get buy-in from that. But anyway, do you, do you, how do you feel as opposed to, oh no, they really are laying awake at night worried about climate change and they're just wrong is in our view. Yeah, honestly, I think that they actually do believe, um, you know, their own rhetoric. They're, they're drinking their own Kool-Aid. Um, I think it's more malign neglect that, you know, they, they're they chasing the incentives that are facing them, right? So, you know, for example, if you're trying to get to work in the morning, it's 8 a.m. and you're driving into New York, 
you're not interested in whether you're contributing to the traffic jam or not, right? You're only interested in the cars that are immediately in front of you, behind you. And I think that the people who are architecting this stuff, certainly the vast majority of them, you know, they're interested in, um, you know, they want a golden parachute to go work at some climate lobby or, you know, they've got their own personal incentives. And rather than sort of zooming out, looking at this big picture, you know, how do we keep Tanzania from taking over uh, the, uh, Earth? And the reason I think that is because if you look at the impact of their policies, they tend to be most harmful at home, right? So the West, mm. broadly speaking, is giving away every sort of real industry, right? It's giving away manufacturing, um, materials production, mining. It, it, it's just handing these lock, stock, and barrel. And, and honestly, it's not really giving them to anybody in particular. It's simply pricing them out. And then effectively, whoever else is, you know, the next most efficient producer is just picking them up. Of course, China, keep in mind, is very, very happy to help, say, African countries pick up that slack. China's going to take a cut of it, right? So it's got, you know, a lot of cooperative uh, projects going on in places like Angola to develop their oil supply. So they are only too happy to replace the suicidal Westerners. But just the fact that it is so stupid that, you know, when you zoom out, it's not just a question of, you know, they're sort of keeping the Norwegian energy. Well, actually, Norway manages to protect itself. But at any rate, um, fracking, okay? You know, it, mm -hmm. it's not like they're safeguarding European fracking, but then really shafting it to the Africans. It's more like they're just completely indiscriminately destructive um, to the extent that they can destroy more in their home country. They're absolutely doing that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, many Western countries have built up these networks of influence on specifically Africa, but poor countries in general, where they're unfortunately uh, able to sort of export that self-destruction and make other countries do it as well. But, uh, you know, similar to the dollar, right, because there's sort of a similar discussion when we talk about the dollar, right, uh, that, you know, there's sort of this deep state cabal and that they've got these, these uh, other ideas. Now, in the dollar, it tends to be that, you know, the dollar can never collapse because, you know, the guys at the CIA are going to intervene and they're going to, you know, assassinate whoever it takes and things like this. And, I mean, you know, it's, it looks good on paper, but then when you actually sit back and you look at the just the sheer stupidity of the policies that they put out, right? Like seizing Russia's dollars or the, what, what they froze in them and now they're talking about seizing. It's so stupid if you were actually trying to safeguard the dollar that there's no way this could be intentional. I think this is just malign neglect. Yes, the age-old question of are they stupid or evil and both <laughs> sides both? have good right. points. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right, maybe some mixture. Yeah, right, all of the above. Okay, well, with that happy note, uh, we'll wrap up here. Uh, my guest this week, folks, has been Peter St. Ange. Peter, thanks so much for your time and your insights. Of course, always. Thanks for having me on, Bob. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.